the reason that exercise is successful with back pain patients is that it ends what really is the plague of the back pain patient, which is fear avoidant behavior and catastrophizing and guarding. Those are three factors that we know of from, basically they all come from behavioral psychology, mm -hmm. but they are very, very prevalent in back pain patients. And people who tend in that direction are the ones who frequently end up in chronic pain. We are halfway to 100. Hello, Inform Nation, and welcome to episode number 50 of the Inform Fitness Podcast with New York Times bestselling author and founder of Inform Fitness, Adam Zickerman. I'm Tim Edwards with the Inbound Podcasting Network and a client of Inform Fitness. Adam Zickerman and Mike Rogers will be joined today by Katherine Jacobson Raymond, who is an investigative journalist, a lecturer, and author of the book, Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery, which is a brilliant and comprehensive book that is essential to millions of back pain sufferers and healthcare professionals. In Catherine's book, and in this episode, Catherine shatters assumptions about surgery, chiropractic methods, physical therapy, spinal injections, and painkillers, and addresses evidence-based rehabilitation options, describing in great detail how to avoid therapeutic dead ends while saving money, time, and most importantly, considerable anguish. Now, if after listening to this episode, you decide to pick up Catherine's book, we will have a link in the show notes to audibletrial.com forward slash inbound. That's audibletrial.com forward slash inbound. And if you are not yet an Audible member, you can sign up for a free 30-day trial membership and download the audiobook Crooked for free. If you decide to cancel your membership for any reason, you keep the book. If you are already an Audible member and have cashed in your free audiobook download, then you'll receive a considerable discount on any of Audible's 180,000 titles to choose from. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash inbound to get your free book. Just scroll on down to the show notes and you're one click away. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, this is going to be a, a very good discussion because uh, it's about a subject that I am very personally involved with, which is, of course, back pain. Me talk about my back issues on several of our episodes, and we're just going to keep the ball rolling now. So let's let's give some 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 stats. Over 77 million people in the United States experience back pain each year. For some, the pain is present day and night. For others, well, it shows up the moment the suitcase comes out of the closet or whenever the relatives come to stay. <laughs> Stress, in other words. All in, back trouble costs the United States about $100 billion, with a B, dollars a year, more than the cost of treating cancer, heart disease, and AIDS combined. This prevalent woe exists in political, psychological, social, and economic contexts that greatly influences how patients will be treated and if they'll ever recover. Today, we have with us journalist and author, Catherine Jacobson Raymond, whose New York Times bestseller Carved in Sand, When Attention Fails and Memory Fades in Midlife, was published in 2007, spent years and a small fortune in her effort to resolve her own low back pain, somebody similar to me. When nothing worked, she decided to take an investigative look at the reality of the spine medicine arena. Expensive, ineffective, sometimes illegal, and often harmful, she found that the back pain industry exemplified the worst aspects of the U.S. healthcare system. Today, we welcome Catherine to our show and to talk about her new groundbreaking book, Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. Now, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you today. When I found out about your book, I had to get it immediately. Uh, I heard through a grapevine that you talked about some of the MedEx machines that we use here, and I needed to know what you felt about that. Little did I know, I didn't realize you were going, this, this book was thick. How many pages is it about? Oh, I think it's 340 pages or so. And it's broken up into two parts. The first part basically is uh, discussing all the issues with our healthcare industry and all the problems and misleading information and all how and how all the scientific evidence points that all these modalities that our doctors are trying to push on us aren't working and why 
And then she goes into the second part of her book where she talks about, well, guess what? There is hope. There are things you can do. So without further ado, let's talk about the first half and let's talk about this dismal situation that the healthcare industry is in. Uh, why are there so many ways to treat back pain, yet so few of them are effective? Well, back pain has largely been medicalized over the past 60 or 70 years. Um, up until the 1930s, nobody was having spine surgery unless you had been hit by a bus or had some other major kind of traumatic accident because the chances of recovery or actually being able to walk again were extremely poor. But uh, in the 1940s, a couple of surgeons at Massachusetts General Hospital discovered almost by accident that you could remove the intervertebral disc from the spine and the person would survive. And in certain cases, the person's leg pain might relent. So having discovered that, that this, this uh, disc could be removed safely enough, uh, they said about doing a lot of that, what they realized was that they didn't fuse the two vertebrae together after they removed the disc, people had a lot of pain subsequently. So someone else came along and found a way to attach vertebrae, uh, one vertebra to another vertebra, and that was the beginning of spinal fusion. And that really occurred in the 1960s and 70s. And it built from there. And spine care became medicalized because it also became commercialized. There was now a way to make a bundle of money off of it. Um, and that is really how it worked. To make money. To make money. <laughs> um, you know, when um, we many, many listeners have probably heard of John Sarno. And when yes. Dr. John Sarno was at the Rusk Institute and after that at um, New York Hospital, New York University Hospital, um, he, he very much understood that what surgeons were doing and what uh, interventional pain management doctors were doing, giving injections, that these were, in general, not benefiting typical low back pain patients. And when I say typical low back pain, I mean patients who have what's described as axial or mechanical low back pain. There are instances, of course, where spine surgery is a benefit, but it's extremely rare. And in fact, I think the most telling uh, statistic is that about 2% of uh, patients who walk into surgeons' offices are actually candidates for surgery, never mind, can never mind uh, exclusively candidates for surgery. We don't even have a number for that. Mm -hmm. But um, So when John Sarno w uh, went around saying that, um, he inspired massive hostility in the back pain treatment community. His book would eventually sell over a million copies. So plenty of people were listening to him. Um, if patients listened, then they would not have surgery and they would not have injections. And um, a lot of money would not be captured by the what I refer to as the back pain industry cartel. It also didn't sound believable. I remember when somebody brought to me Sarno's book many years ago, now knowing that I was a back pain sufferer. And I remember being very skeptical because it's mind, you know, come on, the mind body connection between back pain. Uh, you talk about in your book the discovery that there doesn't have to be an organic problem to have pain. There usually isn't an organic problem. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that, like well, that research you did? This as you really said, the mind-body the mind body connection, you had trouble with that idea. Uh, and a I lot did. of people ha have trouble, and, and this is just really beginning to change now. Um, a lot of – because uh, the Cartesian understanding of – the mind and the body uh, is that they are separate. And that dates back to the 1600s. But we've known for a very, very long time, certainly since the early 1970s, that obviously the mind is not separate. The brain controls absolutely everything you will be doing, feeling, sensing, 
with your body. There, there is no separation. Um, there is also no such thing as a psychological problem because the last time I looked, um, there is no psyche that anybody can track down. Mm -hmm. It is a, a neurological issue. Um, so changing, it's very counterintuitive for people to think that the problem is not in the tissue um, not in your back, not in your hip, when you're dealing with chronic pain, the problem has really migrated to the brain. And now this message is circulating around and around and around in your system. And because of the way the brain works and how, because circuits in the brain become stronger when they are used, the more times this circulates, the more likely it is that the pain is going to continue. So largely what we look at is how do you break the circuit? Mm -hmm. What do you do? Can, you know, we can't just get a pair of wire clippers and go in there and break the mm -hmm. circuit. We have to find another way. Um, and Adam, that's something that you work very hard to do in your gym. And so mm -hmm. do many other people. That's the second book. That's, that's the second. Yeah. I, I just pointed, I just pulled out of my mm -hmm. bookshelf. I found yeah. it. One of just Sarno, the book that I was handed, it's called the mind body. That's why I had mind yeah. body and my right. brain. They're, which, they're about three or four of his books, but they all more or less say exactly the same thing. Yeah. So um, I have the mind body prescription, which you're telling me is the second book that he wrote. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, so breaking that circuit, which you said that we're, we take, we do partly some yes, of that stuff. That's, that's um, the reason that exercise is successful with back pain patients is that it ends what really is the plague of the back pain patient, which is fear avoidant behavior and catastrophizing and guarding. Those are three factors that we know of from, basically they all come from behavioral psychology, mm -hmm. but they are very, very prevalent in back pain patients. And people who tend in that direction are the ones who frequently end up in chronic pain. So what are those? What does that mean, fear avoidant behavior? That means thinking, because likely you've been told by your chiropractor, possibly by your surgeon, probably by a half a dozen other people, be careful how you lift. Mm -hmm. Don't pick that up. Um, if you don't, you know, if it hurts, don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, rest, take it easy, uh, watch your back, spare your back. Um, all of that language makes people feel that it is in fact very dangerous to pursue normal activity or even strenuous activity. Um, and, and it's easy to see why, because it hurts. So we understand pain. We understand pain to be an indication of damage. Mm -hmm. But when chronic pain hits, pain is no longer an indication of damage. It is now an indication that your brain has is not really functioning right. It is getting it is getting a message and it's sending a message, but it is wires across. It is not understanding that you have healed. And as a good example. Um, which I, I, I wasn't happy to have this happen to me, but it did happen. Um, I burned my wrist while uh, cooking for dinner party a few couple of weeks ago. And it's really quite a sub significant burn to the point where people who see it sort of gasp. And when it happened, I thought, okay, burn my wrist. Um, let's see, what do you do with a burn? Okay, they say no, look it up. Okay, don't put any ointment on it. Just put gauze on it. Gauze on, done, cook the rest of the dinner party. And, and I watched with great interest as it healed miraculously over the next week and a half. And at no point did I think I would die from it. Or did I think that my life would be changed and I would not be able to work or go on vacation? Uh, I didn't think I wouldn't be able to take care of my family. And I certainly didn't think that I couldn't cook the rest of that dinner party. Now, if that had been my back, all those thoughts would have prevailed. Mm. I would have thought I probably have to cancel the dinner because I really cannot move here. So it's a very different feeling that we have about our spines. We feel that they are fragile. And if we can get past that with exercise, that is often step one to recovery. Um, when I left you, I, I had the good luck to work out here uh, earlier in the week, which I, I enjoyed very much. And when I left, I thought to, I picked up my backpack, which at that point had 
not only my laptop, which is especially light, but a couple of more or less textbooks in it, <laughs> plus a pile of paper. And I said to myself, as I walked down uh, 56th Street, I said, I should not be carrying this. I know I should not be carrying this. And I thought, wait a minute, what is the matter with you? You just pumped iron <laughs> for an hour. And you just wrote a whole book. And, and I have those thoughts. And <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm perfectly fine carrying this thing. This is not a problem for me. And it, and it, as it turned out, it really wasn't. Yeah, these instincts, though, I think it's they are normal for people, their first impulse, because it is sometimes picking up a suitcase. It's doing sometimes activities of daily living that triggers a back pain for a lot of people or something, lifting something. Uh, and I think they just their instinct is, I have to do less in order right. to not feel that pain. But that is wrong. Right, exactly. And right. very frequently what we consider, everyone can always give you the inciting incident. You know, what was your injury? And and physicians ask that question and, and a physical therapist too. How did you injure yourself? Well, I've had people tell me that they injured themselves picking up the newspaper off the front walk. And I said, really? I said, have you ever done that before? Yes, I have done that every day for 26 years, but it was that one time. Well, clearly it wasn't. It is the straw that broke the camel's back. And I know as well as anyone that when back pain strikes, uh, you do not want to... Um, you do not want to do anything. You want to crawl into your so under your sofa with a heating pad, but you know that that is never going to be the solution to your problem. Not just the heating pad, which is kind of bringing me to the mm -hmm. question I've been wanting to ask you. Also, I found it very interesting in your research. Um, when we deal with pain, not only do we reach for the heating pad, but we like to have a little bit of help by a little bit of medicine, possibly. So the mm -hmm. opioid uh, healthcare crisis. Uh, is in full swing right now, is getting a lot of press recently, and you discovered that a large part of this crisis has been caused really by the back pain industry. That is certainly true, and I wouldn't say that I discovered this necessarily because obviously there's been some tremendous journalism done uh, in this area for the last 10 years, and um, I happened to walk into this story just as it blew wide open, which is you know one of the better things that can happen to an investigative reporter. But a lot of the reporting um, was definitely not done by me. It was done by others, and I have you know brought it into the book and and uh, added to it. I hope um, when I began this work uh, in two thousand and nine, I interviewed a couple of people who happened to tell me that. Um, they told me this astounding thing. They told me, you know, the opioid epidemic. And I said, yes, you, yeah, I know about, you know, street corner drug sales and addicts and, you know, teenagers and young people doing these, uh, you know, picking pres prescription pharmaceuticals out of candy bowls at parties. And, and uh, this one uh, scientist uh, and physician, Andrew Kolodny, whose name has been in the media a great deal, said to me, uh-uh. He said, That's n that is part of it, but it's not most of it. Most of it is happening because physicians are writing those prescriptions. The reason they're writing those prescriptions is that they have been massively encouraged, sometimes financially, um, to prescribe by pharmaceutical companies. And as you can see, I mean, even today, there was uh, something in the paper that uh, every, every state in the union is suing Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And which is the manufacturer of OxyContin. And there's no way Purdue will be bankrupt long before they can satisfy those suits. There's absolutely no way that restitution could be made for to all of those states. But the point is, is uh, well taken that m more than one company jammed this idea down primary care physicians' throats. And primary care physicians see tons of back pain patients and they have they do not know what to do for them. They do not really have a good concept of physical rehab. Um, there's almost no training uh, on pain in a medical school education. Uh, except to become an anesthesiologist and mm -hmm. uh, and drug it away. And, and again, dr drugs again. Right. Yeah. So I was fortunate in that I never uh, used 
uh, opioids in treating my own back pain. I had just written a book about memory and attention and what happens to mm. it in midlife. And I knew for sure that, you know, even an leave w- affected my ability to think to a mm. certain extent. I just wasn't as sharp. So, and no, even though those, they were offered to me repeatedly and, you know, from 2006 to 2009, I never went there. But most people honestly do. And I remember spending some time uh, going to see, uh, I guess, the second or the third surgeon I saw in my hunt for a solution to my own problem. Um, and he said to me, so what kind of medicines do you take? And I said, well, I have a thyroid condition. So I take, uh, you know, and I started to name the drugs, the two drugs I take for my thyroid condition. And I said, I also have allergies. He said, no, 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 no. <laughs> what kind of painkillers do you take? And I said, I don't take painkillers. And he said, but how can you manage? And I said, uh, I don't think I could manage if I took them. So that's why I don't take them. Damn if you do, damn if you He don't. was very surprised. Yeah, I've always resisted it myself. Uh, I always felt it was muscular. That it, 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 I'd, well, ride, I'd ride it out. I wasn't going to start taking these, these high Well, the evidence drugs. is absolutely clear that they are not effective in the treatment of chronic back pain. They're not effective. So why bother? And people develop after they get on a high enough dose, which sort of inevitably they do, they develop what is known as opioid-based hyperalgesia. And or I'm sorry, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which means now the opioid that you are taking is actually generating your pain. And I've seen quite a few people lower their doses. It's not easy for them. And they lower their doses and a great deal of their pain goes away, which comes as a great shock to them because they thought that they mm-hmm. needed the drug so badly. Getting off of them is not a simple matter because people are afflicted. They feel like they have the flu and they are very, very anxious and they are nauseous and uh, a lot of things happen that are very disturbing. Um, And we need a lot more programs that can treat opioid-addicted chronic pain patients because you cannot just taper them. Because if you do just taper them, they will be over possibly overwhelmed with pain, mm-hmm. uh, at least for a period of time, because it is just generally painful to taper opioids. So it may have nothing to do with their actual back pain condition, but you can be assured that they will be in pain while they are tapering. Uh, I was just, just going to comment the health crisis part of the book. It was surprising to think about how big this event really is, but I look back on a couple of times. I had two hand surgeries mm-hmm. back in 2007 and 2009, and I did not ask for any of the painkillers, nor did I need any of the painkillers. And I remember, I, I was just thinking back, they actually did, they gave me a, a, a bottle of 30. They didn't ask if I needed it. They just said, here's a prescription for 30 uh, Percocets if you need them. And then I got another one a month later, and I remember I got them again from the same doctor, and I just, uh, I didn't even, I wasn't asked if I I was in pain or if I even needed and them. did you take them I, I I think I took one like one day because I did I did have pain. And they still like, kept giving like, you the like, prescription. like the day the day yeah. after the surgery the day after the surgery I yeah. think I took one yeah. that day that's typical. and, and uh, uh, that was it but I, they continue to give you prescriptions yeah. even though you were not taking a them. month after on a follow-up visit it's I was amazing. like here's another prescription I didn't even ask for it and I, th- I, I I look back and I'm like thinking why did they do that and I just uh well, Whatever. you know, this happens now, very, still is happening, incredibly it's still happening with uh, kids who are having their wisdom teeth out. And uh-huh. um, they are, you know, they're sending them off with uh, prescriptions for narcotics. Please. And I got a call, I remember it so well, because it was thanks, the night before Thanksgiving, at 10 o'clock at night, I was here in New York, and the phone rang, and it was a woman who I don't know well, but whose son went to school with mine and to high school. And she said, I am, I read your book. I'm standing in, in the drugstore. I have a prescription in my hand that this local community spine surgeon just wrote for my son for, um, 70 Vicodin. And I'm having a crisis of faith. And I said, do not fill that prescription. I said, "There, if your son is walking around, which he was, he definitely does not need that. And she said, you know, he would never, ever. I said, if you knew 
How many mothers and fathers I have heard from whose kid would never ever, but who is the child is no longer with us, then you would understand that never ever means absolutely nothing in this context. And particularly if you're dealing with a, a person of that age, it seems to be especially it's, risky. It's, it's unbelievable to even know that's happening. It's tragic. It's, it's and this is a, a, a spine surgeon in my community, and I was it was all I could do not to get back to California where I live and march into his office and say, throw my book at him mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and say, what the hell were yeah. you thinking? And do you know that that boy did not have surgery and he is perfectly fine. And that surgeon was giving him the Vicodin to tide him over until he had surgery two or three weeks later, which he never had. Well, I had spine surgery in the seventies. It wasn't like that back then. They didn't do that for me. It, it, this is a recent, this yeah. is a relatively recent this thing. This happened in the 80s primarily because um, at that time, uh, up until up until the mid 80s, the understanding was that you did not use, um, you did not use narcotics to treat chronic pain. Uh, you use them to treat cancer pain and typically in hospital, not, you know, right. not an outpatient. You're not going home with 50 uh, oxycodone. <laughs> but um, there was such an enormous push. And if you read my book uh, mm -hmm. in the chapter called The Opioid Wars, I mean, it is a saga that you just cannot believe in terms of how Purdue Pharma uh, recruited a physician named Russell Portnoy to sell these drugs to primary care physicians. Um, and it was an one of the most, probably the most successful drug marketing effort in the history of pharmaceuticals. But look where it has yeah, put us. Are now. Moving on to what we can do about it, which is the stuff that really excites me, uh, is, you know, we, we mentioned John Sarno and how the, he understood there was a mind-body connection to this back pain. And he, let's face it, he didn't get a lot of cred from, from his peers. Uh, he was basically ignored by his peers, and, and and they were skeptical because, again, what we talked about earlier, you know, they didn't believe the mind-body connection. Not to mention the fact that they felt that their uh, their jobs might be in jeopardy if he was right. But anyway, people are coming around, and now there exists these facilities called chronic pain rehabilitation programs, otherwise known as CPRPs. And you talk a great deal about these uh, CPRPs. Can you Tell, yeah. tell us about these because that seems to be the answer for this back pain. Industry. Well, those these types of programs are typically three weeks or four weeks, and you might be going eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, and they are multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary programs, which means that there's a physician, often a physiatrist, sometimes a surgeon on staff, and psychologists and physical therapists and exercise specialists. Um, and um, other, sometimes there's a biofeedback specialist, there may be a Feldenkrais instructor, uh, but it is a combined effort of all of those parties and especially the patient who will be working her butt off during this period. Um, and these programs are, they do not make money for their facilities. Um, so RIC, the Re uh, Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago has a program and you know, the rest of RIC has to support this program because it does not pay the bills. And that is a sad thing. Very sad comment, and I do believe that uh, given, for instance, the three papers that were just published in The Lancet, all of which you can locate on my website, um, which is at cjraymond.com, these three Lancet papers really substantiate the benefits of uh, multidisciplinary care, and of course, they also rule out the benefits of surgery, shots, etc., and even they deal with the opioid addictions if somebody well they yes they they some programs do some programs don't some feel that um, they're the real thing is to get their patients strong enough and fit enough and psychologically functional enough and then deal with the opioid pro problem and then others take it the other direction entirely. But I go through these programs uh, in the book and, and you know, I, I spent time in sev with several of them um, and met people who had gone through them. Um, 
And this is an appropriate intervention for people who have tried pretty much everything else and are not surgical candidates or do not want to be surgical candidates. And just as an aside, I hear from so many people, you know, I had no other option. Surgery was my only option. You know, that is a problem, that phrase, because for surgery is the only option possibly if you have been hit by a bus. But it is not the only option if you are dealing with axial or mechanical back pain, which or is what they call unspecified. Unspecified, which means that you can take a, you know, you can have your MRI and they can take a look at it and they go, you see that? That's a disc herniation. Well, you know what? They're perfectly normal people with no back pain at all whose spines look just like that. In mm -hmm. fact, pretty much everyone's spine looks yeah. just like that. And and this is something that people don't recognize because they're sent for the MRI or sometimes, very frequently, they demand to have an MRI. Their neighbors have had MRIs, <laughs> their colleagues have, everyone has, and they want theirs too, and they pay good money for that insurance coverage, and they're getting it. And when they get it, they take a look at that MRI, and I've never seen one before, and they flip out <laughs> because MRIs are very unattractive. They look like bones that have been left too long in the oven. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're crumply and they just look sick. And then with that comes the note from the radiologist. And those notes say things like herniated disc, uh, degenerative disc disease, protruding disc, um, longless black discs, white discs. There are so many things that show up on those reports. And at one point in the course of my research, I was contacted by a radiologist who was no longer practicing. And he said to me, do you realize that if you, if as a radiologist, you frequently work for a spine surgeon, and if you send back the report that says, nope, we got no trouble here, they send it back to you and say, find some. So uh, there are many of the things that are noted on a radiology report are absolutely meaningless because they are found in the general population. So here we go again. So there's like this there's this conflict of interest here because uh, that's what they're doing. You get this report back and they're saying you need some fusion, you need some, you need injections or you need some type of surgery to relieve the pressure on the disc. They, they hardly ever work, but that's the automatic response right. to these MRIs. And we play into that because as patients, we are really committed from a very early age, possibly from the time you, your mommy takes you to the pediatrician when you're two days old, um, we are committed to the idea that whatever is not working properly can be fixed. It will be fixed for us. We will not have to fix it. And this, this kind of commitment is so powerful for people who are struggling with back pain. And that's why they go through serial interventions. They go from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's extremely common for people to tell me they've seen eight surgeons or they've seen 40 different practitioners and they keep moving and paying because none of this is free. Even if you have insurance, you're mm -hmm. still paying co-pays, you know, and um, speaking of uh, cost, what is the cost to check into a chronic pain rehabilitation program? It depends a lot on wh what your coverage is. If you are a workers' compensation patient, it may be completely paid for. Uh, if you are a person uh, who's like me, an independent contractor with uh, basically a PPO, um, you're going to pay a lot more. It could be $30,000 and it could be $15,000. The insurance coverage varies dramatically from insurer to insurer. Now, do I think this is about to change? Yes, I think it already is changing because believe me, knowing what insurers, knowing what they know now about how ineffective mm -hmm. surgery and injections are and about how risky MRI is in terms of driving surgery and injections, they're not going to want to pay for that. And um, you know, I just spent a bunch of time with um, physiatrists who effectively earn their keep by giving injections mm -hmm. and they are mighty darn nervous. Because what they do for a living is now 
publicly recognized to not be effective. So something is going to have to give. And it is always physicians who drive what insurance covers. Most people don't realize that. But, um, you know, if you're Blue Cross and you're talking about back pain coverage in the greater metropolitan area, you will have a panel of surgeons um, and maybe you'll have some physiatrists or maybe you'll have some uh, some uh, rheumatologists mm. who will say, yes, this will be covered and that will be covered and this will be covered at a higher rate than that. So therefore, let's do that. <laughs> so let's do that. <laughs> let's do this thing. And and yeah, uh, I did also hear from a physiatrist uh, that now that uh, spinal fusions are they're harder to get approved. Uh, what is happening, and this is just horrifying, is that when one is approved, they do more levels and they do put it in more instrumentation. So they price, they they drive the price upward on a single patient because they know the next patient might be hard to find, which is just, I, I, I made me, I, I could barely eat my lunch. Yeah. Well, you know, what I found to be astonishing was when given the choice, when the insurance company is given the choice, to either pay out for $150,000 spine surgery. I think you used $150,000 yeah. yeah, as, as the average cost of a spine. spinal bed. fusion. As yeah. opposed, they'll do that in a second, but they'll give you a lot of pushback if you say, I want to check into a chronic pain rehabilitation program for $45,000. Right. What they'll say at the moment, and as I said, is changing. Something is, that works a lot better than yes, the spine surgery, Yeah, and way. is much safer. It has no long-term yeah. downsides. What they'll say usually is we'll just bill that um, by the individual um, modality. So, um, you know, for exercise, we don't actually pay for that. But physical therapy will pay $38. <laughs> and for, you know, a biofeedback, uh, we don't pay for that. So it becomes very counter to the concept of multidisciplinary training because they don't pay for this and they don't pay for that and they don't pay for this. And, you know, it's been a huge problem so, and I'm ready to go to Washington so, on this. So insurance companies used to listen to the doctors when they were doing this and now they're they're actually putting their own brains on it. Well, they're starting to yeah. because, you know, they're well, it's not... It's going to cost them more to pay out, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And the long-term payout is much higher because if... You do a multi-level spinal fusion on a patient who's 50, and that patient never recovers and is in uh, has is addicted to opioids um, and has a car accident, and you know this goes on and on, and you know and potentially uh, no longer works, and now is on total disability, and therefore is receiving social security disability payments. I mean, the cost to society is enormous. And it's avoidable. Um, but try to get somebody who hasn't been off a sofa in mm -hmm. three years to enter a multidisciplinary program, which is going to be three weeks, eight hours a day, five days a week. And you're going to be exercising really many, many of those hours when mm -hmm. you're not in a cognitive behavioral psychology um, group. It's pretty hard to get people to do it. You know, they, they the think, can that, I just have some drugs or, or another operation? It wants yeah. a quick but fix. As you, but as you reported, uh, studying and, and visiting a lot of these programs, uh, you've discovered that their success rate for the ones that make it through are very high. Very high. I mean, in the book, I've got uh, multiple stories from the programs, uh, but the stories from um, a Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, the Shirley, what is now called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab is the name of their chronic pain program. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time with two women who had come out of it and both had felt that their functional lives were over. They, they were going nowhere and they were really, um, obsessing over their pain and their lack of function. And one of them was massively distressed. If her husband went to work, she, she would just fall into a hole over this. Mm -hmm. And the other was raising two, two young um, adopted children uh, in a, from, an, from another country, a very challenging adoption situation. And, you know, these people couldn't afford to give up. Um, and they went through these programs and they came out very functional. 
one of them was so functional. She was back to skiing uh, black diamonds. And mm-hmm. that was so uh-huh. awesome, except for on the last run of the day, she was on the, uh, you know, the little trail between the lodge and the parking lot and something went wrong and she slipped and broke her leg. <laughs> On the catwalk. I on remember. the catwalk. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, that's ironic. and she broke her leck. And I was sort of, I, which, when I called her, I said, So, how are you doing? Because I, I keep up with these people somewhat. Yeah. Uh, she said, I was doing, I was doing well, <laughs> but now I have a broken leg. So, not good. What's funny is that, Adam, I think if I recall from all of your stories, whenever your back has acted up, it's never been like after or during a ski trip or a snowboarding trip. I mean, usually it's some. Some bullshit during your life. Sometimes like, nothing. Yeah, a sneeze. Looks, yeah, but it's never. You never sneeze. come back from uh, from you know being like really athletic and doing. Uh, no, it actually yeah. feels better after that. Yeah. Right, my back too. also feels better when I've spent a weekend skiing and stuff. Yeah, like that. well, probably it hasn't been all that stressful unless you have a couple of kids with you, in which case it can be well, very stressful. It, it is. Yeah. Well, but. you know what the thing is, I've I, I didn't fall into that. I am a back patient kind of mm-hmm. uh, mentality. I, I feel lucky in that respect. I just didn't, maybe I'm just somebody who denies everything anyway in my life, but, mm. but, but this is, this is maybe one of those cases where denial is a good thing because I never accepted it. And, and, and there are so many people with my back pain. I, uh, and I have some bad back pain at times. I don't let it ever stop me from doing things because I feel the best way to overcome it is just to do, 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 do. Not to mention the fact that I also, I've done my research, and for the last twenty years, I've been u- using. And you talk; you have a whole chapter about it in your book about the Medex machines, and and, ha- and 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 these spinal extension machines that do such a wonderful job of isolating the spine and really strengthening the spine, much better than the typical conventional method methodology out mm-hmm. there. And you did a lot of research on that, and you spent a lot of time with. Uh, Brian Nelson out in Minnesota, yes. who uh, runs a whole practice using these medics he, medical machines. He's now retired, but he did, and the practice has been purchased by an insurance provider. Um, That's good news. I it, think. it seems, but I also <laughs> have heard that they're not quite running the program. They're going. Um, they're going to. They're going to dilute it. They're going to. They've diluted it. it, and that see the key for a program like this. Um, the very best thing you can have is an orthopedic surgeon on board because that person can quickly, remarkably quickly separate uh, people who are appropriate for MedEx um, or appropriate for serious um, weight training, for that matter, from those people who need to do something else first. And not everyone is ready uh, even when they begin mm-hmm. to hop on a Medex. And well, we there's people talk- who aren't. Yeah, Michael know? and I were just talking about this this morning because there's other things that you looked at that work also, not just these expensive Medex machines that we have, but but you talked about Feldenkrais. You talked about uh, Stuart McGill and his program, which is very uh, – they're, they're a series of exercises that, that do go a long way to really uh, relieving back pain. Right. And sometimes if someone has is very deconditioned, um, starting with a Feldenkrais program, um, and certainly can read about that in the book, but it's basically um, affecting uh, the way that the brain mm-hmm. is understanding movement. It's repatterning yes. those movements, breaking that yeah. circuit, that bad circuit. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the heart procedure, like an ablation, which also breaks uh, a bad circuit in the heart. And, and it you know, it's mm-hmm. called an ablation. Just kind of, you're, you're reminding me of that because it's a neurological connection. They, these are, uh, that, that, that create a pattern that, that keep circling in that bad pattern and you have to break that pattern. Right. And some of these movements, the Feldenkrais, uh, the Stuart McGill plank, in other words, planks, uh, certain types of proper abdominal work, uh, bird dogs, things like that go a long way. And then of course, doing spinal uh, extension on a Medex machine, which really fixes the hips in place. And a lot of expense goes into these machines to really have you extend the spine the proper way and strengthen lumbar muscles that are otherwise ignored pretty much any other way. You can't strengthen them. I mean, I do think that the McGill exercises done properly do do affect those muscles. Absolutely. But the McGill exercises very often are not done properly. And, um, I did them with you the other day and I, I've been doing those exercises for at least six years. Mm-hmm. And I would say that my trainer will find something wrong with the way I do them at least every two weeks. Mm-hmm. There's always something 
you know, mm-hmm. you're now dropping your right shoulder, dropping yeah, sure. your left shoulder, you're it's, tilting it's, this way, you're tilting that way. There's always a little correction that can you be know. made and or something that could be improved upon or something right. that you're doing that cheated a little bit. Right. And, uh, but right. from my experience doing those types of exercises with it's a, it, it's unbelievable the results you have almost immediately with some people yeah, uh, within like uh, the first session or within a week, two weeks, yeah. I see 50% to almost a hundred percent recovery. It's amazing. And yeah. I, so many people ask me about them that I've actually put um, on my website, which is again at CJ Raymond, R A M I N.com. Um, I have an, right at the top of the, of the home page, I have a button that takes you straight to a video showing you those exercises because I got really tired of having to send it to people. <laughs> Gosh, you know, guys, it makes me want to go do them right now. Can we go do those exercises now? <laughs> I need to do those. I, I, I have a text. I text message uh, uh, about five clients a day. Like I just say, Hey, did you do your exercise today? I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, Cause they just, they need me to sort of push them into doing it. So even though they yeah. know they might, yeah, they work so great, but I just forget to do them. And I'm like, why do you forget to do Dude, them? If they give you that much because uh, I like, I like to complain. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but we hear them all the time though. But it just, you know, you, you're saying this and, and, and obviously the physical aspect of these exercises are doing something from a physiological point of view, but I, I can't help but think that as soon as you tell somebody, let's do this, we're going to have a solution. You have this confidence about yourself and, and, and they trust you and you do these things and they're saying, wow, I can do this. And then you get them on a medics machine and they can extend their back and maybe it hurts a little bit, but they feel so much better two weeks later. All of a sudden they have this confidence like, Hey, there is hope. Yes. You know, and, and that in itself. Uh, I 100% agree. And and I talk about that in the book that the chapter is called The Back Whisperers. Right. I love that chapter. And everybody, the thing is, everyone has a, a different idea of the coach that will provide that kind of confidence. Yeah. And for me, um, I have a trainer who's a wonderful woman. I adore her. Oh, She's about five years younger. Her I thought name, you were going to say I was. Well, you are You are really not. You're kind of adorable. You are adorable. In a different kind of way than Diana. But uh, Diana, Diana is referred is to in the book as the goddess of exercise. That's right. And she her. is, um, she's about five years younger than I am, which is good. So she'll be around a while. And uh, basically <laughs> she's an athlete and tough as nails. And she can really push me without me feeling like I am endangered. I really don't feel endangered anymore now. I don't really care what people give me. But when I was beginning and I would have a twinge here and a twinge there, when you're just beginning, you need someone who's going to give you that kind of confidence. I also really like, um, and, and, you know, some, some men don't do well working with men because they feel very competitive Mm. with men. Other men can only work with men. Um, I happen to like uh, coaches like Brian Nelson, who is this big giant um, Air Force guy. Mm-hmm. And y- you would not say no <laughs> to Brian Nelson, nor would you ever say no to Joe Zaret, who is also um, extensively interviewed in the book. And you can't be going around saying no, and you can't back out of things because they hurt. Uh, there is a world of difference between this is really hard and it hurts, and I have been stricken with nerve pain and I think I'm going to pass out. And very few people are able to tell the difference uh, mm. when they're doing the exercises. Yeah. So you do have to have some faith. And one thing I can absolutely guarantee it is going to hurt because it hurts to sit and it hurts to walk and it hurts to sleep. So why would you think it wasn't going to hurt to do these exercises? And, you know, the thing that is, is drilled home over and over again, that is that once you've had a good evaluation and, you know, cancer and progressive neurological issues have been ruled out, Mm -hmm. don't have an infection. You know what? Hurt does not mean harm. And I just spent, um, hours and hours with my brother who is struggling currently with back pain. And I, yesterday I did an hour on the topic of none of this is going to harm you. And this morning he said, you know what? I realize none of this is going to harm me and I'm feeling a lot better. And I <laughs> really cross my palm with silver right now. That'd be $147. Um, but he, he was afraid. He was really afraid and catastrophizing 
not to me, but in his own mind about what this meant and 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 how it applied to aging at fifty five yeah. well, years. Well, you old. can understand. And you, th- this pain is bad, and this pain is real. It's bad. It's real, and it's bad, and, and it, uh, it makes it hard to think, and it makes it hard to do anything. Um, but it's uh, to break the circuit is your goal, and mm-hmm. you may need some help in terms of cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. therapy, which I talk about in the book, um, in order to dispel some of uh, your issues with fear avoidant behavior. Um, Many people with back pain take to walking in odd ways because they are guarding the part that hurts, but actually they're doing nothing for the part that hurts. I mean, I've seen people put down, you know, pick up things and put them down in, in ways that are far more deleterious to their spines than if they did it normally. And you do read all this about, you know, lift with the knees and not with the back. Well, try making a bed with your knees bent. You cannot do that because Mm -hmm. you can't get close enough to the bed to do it. Mm -hmm. So many, many things that are drilled into patients about how they should lift, you know, all of this is kind of nonsense. Once you are sufficiently conditioned you know, you can, I throw my bag into the overhead compartment. Uh, I'm not worrying about that on an airplane anymore. And it <laughs> used to be, I would worry about it for three days. You know, how am I going to get that bag up oh, there? Boy. And being yeah. that I am five foot 10 and <laughs> I look like I'm perfectly fit. Um, no one, I, I have yet to encounter a man of any age who wants to put my bag up there for me. And so it's a good thing <laughs> that I can do it myself. I would do it for you. No, you wouldn't. You'd look at me and you'd say, she's super fit. Why she's she- taller than me for crying out loud. Well, with, with, uh, with my older clients who are like in their 70s, I don't help them off the floor. I, I, just, I, no, I know. I, I, I help everybody else off the floor. Like, no, you need practice at Shut this. Up. Yeah. So, and and we, there are people actually who I work on how to do that you know, more efficiently yeah. where to put their arm, where to turn, how to do everything so they can actually do it and hopefully develop the strength and the skill of doing. Uh, Which those is, might activities. be in their seventies, the most important thing you'll teach them I, I because sooner or so. later they're going to fall on the floor and yeah. they need to be able to get up. The, yeah. There are times when you're doing rehabilitation for your body or even exercise where it's not comfortable and it could actually hurt a little bit. Uh, and there are times where, I think those are signals that are like, wait, you're doing something that's wrong. And maybe you're guided in the wrong way and maybe you're guided in the right way. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know when to say that hurts and that, that hurt is bad and that hurt is good? Well, when I was working out uh, with you lot earlier in the week, um, I asked you a number of times, where am I supposed to feel this? What muscle groups are engaged? And I know because I've been at this, you know, working out pretty seriously for five years or seven years, maybe, um, you know, if I'm feeling this like in some tiny muscle in my shoulder, that is probably not what we had in mind, you know? (laughs) Um, I think that, I think that once people become, uh, start slow, Start really slow. Start light and build up. Don't start heavy. Build up slowly. Start with what you can safely, easily do. And that doesn't mean that it won't hurt. Mm. But start light and then add. And I think the place where people you know, get in trouble, they, I think CrossFit is, is a place that a lot of people overdo it completely, uh, especially well, people go to CrossFit are typically very competitive. So it is very easy. Because it's a sport, not an it's exercise program. It's a sport. Program. And they get very, <laughs> very competitive and overdo it. And I did one half of one CrossFit class and I said, Nope. You got to be joking. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. No, it's, there are, that's the thing. I think that's, I wanted to hear you yeah. say, I mean, it's, start there light. are, yeah, progressions where you start at level one and then yeah. you go to level two and, and, and do you feel a little bit that mm-hmm. should be normal that you're feeling like you're yeah. working but not straining? Right. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, well, we hit one exercise towards the end of our session where I was to move uh, some pulleys and nothing was happening. Mm-hmm. I was not moving them, you know, and, and nothing hurt but i was not moving them and that meant to me that i was misunderstanding what i was supposed to be doing because uh, clearly if i can move everything else in the room there's no reason i couldn't move that weight i just simply didn't know what 
to do, how to do it. So having someone to explain, oh, no, it is not supposed to be coming from that mm-hmm. tiny joint behind your elbow. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be coming from someone. Right. And this is one reason why it's very important for people who are trying to climb out of this abyss to work with talented trainers. Mm -hmm. And how do you find that? Well, that's what everyone wants to know. And in the book, I detail what you should be looking for, what kind of qualifications, what kind of personality. Because if you're working with someone who says, does it, is that bothering you? Well, then stop. We'll, we'll stop. Lie down. Let me stretch you. Well, that is not going to work out for you. But there are definitely questions that you should be asking. And I go through these in the book. And, mm-hmm. you know, you cannot, as a middle-aged person who's not very fit, you, you do not want a 22-year-old cowboy for a trainer who is going to treat you as if you were 22 years old and fit. And that happens a lot. It happens to people all the time. I had somebody throw a medicine ball at me. There was absolutely right. no possibility mm-hmm. I could catch that thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess he thought that would be fun. Yeah, there's. So. it's definitely, uh, the answer is not to stop, but it's to find the right progression right. at the right level for the person exactly. all the time. Exactly. I, 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 on your blog, I loved... Uh, uh, when you commented on acute pain, the first thing to do is take a walk, yeah. be mobile. And the thing is, I'm, I've always been a believer in that. Like mobility is what, you know, you know, th- I think that's one of our big problems is that we're so many people, we don't as trainers, but a lot of people are just find themselves in their life and in their job just too immobile. That's right. And it, but it can strike anywhere because, uh, you know, my brother, is very athletic and he lives to exercise. He truly does. I mean, everything else he does, he does between uh, between periods of exercise. Mm-hmm. And yet he is really dealing with serious back pain right now because for all his exercise and all his sports, he never really built the right musculature for uh, life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he can hit the hell out of a tennis ball, but his spine is really not operating properly currently. And we have to do something, you know, some things about that. And it's very hard for someone who's been a really serious athlete for his entire life to get that into his mind. Well, he's lucky he has you as a sister that did all this work. You better check with him. (laughs) (laughs) How lucky he's feeling. Oh, I got to hear about this back pain. Uh, For my my younger (laughs) sister, for crying out. No older. I'm older. So maybe he'll listen to you. (laughs) I'm the oldest. (laughs) All right. So we have to, we have to wrap. We're running out of time. We have to wrap. Are there any concluding comments you'd like to make before we uh, sign off? Well, I think that we have to really think about and talk to patients about changing the chip and converting from a, okay, I'll do this exercise, but I'm still looking for someone who's going to fix me. Um, and I am undergoing m- numerous interventions while I'm exercising. I'm not going to really be very serious about exercising because I really still believe that there is someone out there who can fix me to considering that the only person who is going to make a difference here will be you yourself. Mm. Um, and you're probably wasting time and money running from intervention to intervention. Yeah, the efficacy of exercise has been now clearly shown, Mm -hmm. clearly shown. You may need some psychological help because lots of things spiral when you suffer from chronic back pain. I mean, there are plenty of people whose marriages are a wreck. Now, whether they are a wreck because of the back pain or the back pain, the, or the marriages have caused the uh, back pain, <laughs> that's another question. But there's sometimes other help is needed, and you shouldn't be afraid to get it um, because sometimes that is the key to resolving the problem. Well, the book is Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery by Katherine Jacobson. Raymond. And it's now out in paperback. You can also download the Kindle version. And if you really want to listen to me for 13 hours, (laughs) you can get the audio book from Audible or from Amazon. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Special thanks to Katherine Jacobson Raymond, author of Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and as you just heard Catherine mention herself, her audiobook is available in Audible. 
and you can download it for free just by clicking the link in the show notes to audibletrial.com forward slash inbound. Sign up for a free 30-day membership trial and download Catherine's book, Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. If you decide to cancel your membership for any reason, you get to keep her book. Simple as that. And while you're in there, you can pick up additional audiobooks from other guests that we've had on the show, and you'll enjoy discounts of up to 30% just by being an Audible member. Now, getting back to the workout, if you haven't tried the Power of 10 workout for yourself, what in the world are you waiting for? Click on over to the Inform Fitness website. That's informfitness.com. There you'll find a free slow-motion, high-intensity strength training workout waiting for you. Click the Try Us Free button right there at the top of the homepage. Fill out the form that pops up and pick your location. Then you can experience a free full-body workout that you will complete in just 20 to 30 minutes. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, for Adam Zickerman and Mike Rogers of Inform Fitness, I'm Tim Edwards with the Inbound Podcasting Network.